This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 72nd edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today as my special guest, I have Professor Mitchell Nathanson of Villanova University School of Law. Professor, I'll get back to you in a second. I want to go through a couple of housekeeping things here. My engineer today is James Gerd. James does a lot of work at our station, Rainier Avenue Radio. He also is the host of the of the After Dark Show. We have a lot of good things going on at Rainier Avenue Radio. We have sports shows hosted by yours truly. Rick Dupree hosts a show. Granville Emerson Ronald Laurent hosts a great show. Lidline Sports. Mazvita Marari hosts a show. He also hosts a show with Pat McCarthy on the Seattle Metro Sports Conference. Mark Bryant hosts a fitness-based show. Juan Cotto hosts a show. At Rainier Avenue Radio, we have a lot of sports shows, entertainment shows, political shows, music shows, lifestyle shows, a lot of good things going on over here. We also cover a lot of Seattle high school events and other, other sports and related activities. My show, Sports and Stuff, has been around now since 2017 and having fun covering all sorts of sports topics, a little special focus on the policy and business side of sports, and Professor Nathanson's a very good guest. A lot of my interviews are on my law firm website, pluslawoffices.com. A bunch of them are on uh, up on Mixcloud now under sports and stuff. They're continuing to get updated. Bunch, a bunch should be uh, added to the, the station website as well, rainieravenueradio.world. Well, Professor, let me get back to you. I promised I would. Uh, professor uh, Nathanson is a professor of law at Villanova University in Philadelphia, a great school. He has a special focus on the intersection of sports, law, and society. Uh, Professor Nathanson has, has written many books and articles about sports. I'll mention a couple in, in the introduction here. He wrote a 2008 book, The Fall of the 1977 Phillies, How a Baseball Team's Collapse, Sank a City Spirit. Uh, Professor Nathanson was a scholar advisor, the 2011 HBO production, The Curious Case of Kurt Flood, a fascinating baseball figure. Uh, Professor Nathanson has a new book coming out about Jim Bouton, the late great baseball player who wrote the famous kiss and tell book, uh, Ball Four, and part of it takes place in Seattle when Bouton played for the Pilots in 1969. Uh, all sorts of stuff Professor Nathanson's done. He's also written a book about uh, the baseball legend Dick Allen. Well, Professor, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on RainierAvenueRadio.world. Well, thanks for having me. It should be fun. Absolutely. Well, Professor, this is a, a frequent background question I like to ask guests to get more acquainted with them and have the listeners learn more about a person. Why don't you break down for a minute how you got so interested into the academic and legal side of sports? Uh, well, I always was a baseball fan, so I grew up a baseball fan. And um, and you know, when you're when you're young, you love one thing about sports, and then when you get older, you love different things about it. And so, you know, when I was young, I loved all the players, and I knew everybody. I think in the '70s, I could tell you the 25-man roster of every team in the major leagues, and uh-huh. and I knew. I knew every player, I knew every every statistic, I knew everything. But then, you know, you get older and then you, you, you appreciate it differently and I became more interested in well, you know, why why do we understand the game the way we do, the history the way we do, um, you know, why is a guy like Dick Allen uh enemy number one? Um, you know, he was a little before my time and I was always interested as I got older, I got interested in well geez, why why does everybody hate this guy? 
Um, and so you, 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 you get to understand it a little bit differently. And so that's really where that all came from. Like, you know, I was in a position where I could actually spend some time and do some, do some research and some writing on it and find out the answers to these things. And so it's been a lot of fun to go through these things and to try to really answer questions that I have myself about all these things. I always start everything off with a, a question that I don't know the answer to, and I have a lot of fun finding out the answer along the way. Well, i got to tell you, Professor, on a personal note, I've never become a law professor like you, but we both went to law school. We both grew up as, as big baseball fans who could name players on virtually every roster. So hearing what you had to say and your interest in sports kind of connects with, with mine. And I kind of, at this point in my life, I'm kind of more interested in kind of the policy side a tad bit more than maybe the, the numbers side as well. So what you just said kind of resonated with me on a personal level a little bit. Professor, um, you work as a as a professor at Villanova Law School, very good law school. You also went, I believe, to Georgetown Law School and Tulane undergrad, all very esteemed institutions. Let me ask you something about your work on the academic aspects of sports. Do, do most of your law professor colleagues and other colleagues – do they appreciate the academic side of sports, or is it something that is still kind of becoming more and more of a recognized area in academia sports? F- fill me in on that a little bit. Well, we have a sports law center. So, um, you know, I, I would guess that at a lot of places maybe it might take a backseat. Um, but at Villanova, it really doesn't because we have a sports law center, and um it gets a lot of attention, and, um, um, you know, maybe some people in the faculty think it gets too much attention, but, <laughs> um, but you know, sports sports attracts attention. And, and so, um, yeah, I don't think that's an issue really too much. Uh, I do remember when I first – I mean, I've been there for, geez, 19 years now. Well, wow. I remember when I, when I started, um, yeah, I think there was a little bit of – Maybe I got a little more attention than the rest of them just because, I mean, my subject matter is it's a little glossier right. than, um, than what they would do. And so, yeah, there's probably a little bit of jealousy there and a little bit of, you know, why does he get that attention? And, and But it's not so much me. It's more of you know, the subject matter. Um, but there's a lot of meaty things in sports um, that affect the law and affect, you know, everything else that we, you know, how we govern our lives. So, and eventually, as I said, we ended up with a sports law center, which I think justified pretty much everything that I was doing beforehand. So, um, you know, you know, there are always people who are going to be like, well, you know, what I do is more important than what he does. Well, whatever. Um, you know, I'm happy doing what I do and, you know, let them do what they do. And, you know, who cares, really? Exactly. People per- pick uh, an interest in all sorts of different fields. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Villanova University School Law Professor Mitchell Nathanson. Professor, in the introduction, and you mentioned him a minute ago, Dick Allen has already been discussed. He was a prominent African-American baseball player, 1964 Rookie of the Year, 1972 MVP. I'm probably paraphrasing this a little bit. Uh, professor, but you wrote in so many words that Jackie Robinson's goal was to play in the major leagues, and Dick Allen's goal years later was to be respected. Can you elaborate more on that a little bit? Yeah, so the, there's a lot of attention paid to the integration of baseball for obvious reasons. Um, it was a huge event. It was a huge occasion and a great leap forward. 
But what a lot of people forget is that after baseball was integrated, and there was a period of time in the late 40s, early 50s, where as teams were integrating, and Major League Baseball integrated rather slowly. Right. Um, every, you know, there would be a, a team would have one or two players, and then you know there was a, a quota on players for really throughout the 50s. Um, uh, and, and so most people just assumed, well, Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. That issue is over. Well, it wasn't over. It, it, it was a first step. And, and what happened in the aftermath was that a lot of players came along after him who were subject to these racial quotas on their teams and really had no voice or way to you know, challenge it or do anything about it or felt that they could do anything. So that when Allen shows up by the early 60s, he shows up into this into this world where there is a there's a racial quota and there's also an expectation of what a black player can say as opposed to what a white player can say. And Allen was really the first guy to challenge that um, and, and stand up for, I don't know if he was, he wasn't really standing up for larger societal rights like Jackie Robinson was. He was just standing up for himself. But by standing up for himself, he was actually standing up for a lot of people, even though I don't, that wasn't his intention at all. Uh, but he he wanted the respect that a Mickey Mantle gets or got, and because Mickey the, the superstars, the white superstars on these teams were treated to a separate set of rules than the rest of the players. Allen was the star of the Phillies, but he wasn't being treated with to that same separate with that same separate set of rules, and it bothered him. And so the funny thing about Allen was that you go back and you look into the newspaper clippings at that time, and there's a lot of newspaper clippings say, well, Alan, he wants to be treated by a separate set of rules. And the answer to that is, yeah, yeah, he did. Um, he wanted to be treated with, according to the Mickey Mantle set of rules because he was just as good as Mickey Mantle, at least for a period of time. Right. And and he wasn't being treated according to those, and it bothered him, and he spoke out about it. So um, that's what that's about. He He wanted the respect that a superstar should get, but only a white superstar was getting that respect, um, you know, really, until he came along. And he, he, he challenged that and changed a lot of things. And I don't think he gets the – he doesn't get the, uh, the accolades for that. Um, be, I, I really think he changed a, a, a lot about how we view African-American baseball players. But he, he's, he was branded as a bad guy, and he's still branded as a bad guy. And we don't hear, uh, Mitch, about – Dick Allen is an activist as much as we hear about Muhammad Ali or Bill Russell or even Kurt Flood we're going to get to in, in a couple minutes. So why, why do you think people hear about Dick Allen as much in terms of how he tried to shape up the baseball power structure a bit? Well, because he, he, wasn't a, he, wasn't a, he didn't have a broad social agenda like, like Kurt Flood. I mean, Kurt Flood clearly had a, had a social agenda. Right. Kurt, Kurt Flood was, was, was very clear that he was trying to make things better for everybody, um, Alan never wanted to do that. Alan, quite frankly, Alan didn't care. Um, <laughs> Alan just wanted to make things better for Alan. But you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and and so human nature. By yeah, and, and so by making things better for himself, he actually made things better for a lot of other people. Again, that wasn't his intention. Um, he wasn't against it, but he he certainly wasn't standing out in the forefront saying, "Hey, I'm doing this for you guys." He, he he sure as hell wasn't, but um, but he did, and you um, just the, the, the sheer force of standing up. Yeah, it had to be a superstar to stand up, because a regular player 
an average player could not get away with what Allen got away with. I mean, Allen was just too good. And, and so you, if you were in management, you had to listen to him. Uh, I mean, Allen was the first, I think he was the first major league player to actually have an agent negotiate his contract for him. Isn't that something? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, the only reason he was able to get away with that was because he was Dick Allen. I mean, he was a <laughs> superstar. Um, now, the Phillies didn't like it, uh, but what were they going to do? You know, and that, that's what I'm getting at. Like, a, right. it, it would have to be a guy like that. It has to be a guy who is that good, who, who could actually stand up and get things done. You know, an average player will just the, – they will get ignored or released. But you couldn't do that to Dick Allen in the 1960s and early 70s. Let me, let me ask you another question or two about Allen. We could probably just whole interview talk about your Dick Allen book and book alone. But let me get another question or two into Dick Allen. We'll get into a couple other things. So I read that Dick Allen has been referred to as the second most controversial player in baseball history behind Roger Hornsby. But many of his teammates, such as Mike Schmidt and his manager, said he was a really good teammate. Why, why do you think Allen is, is, is kind of seen as such a pariah? Well, yeah, he, he basically did get along with his teammates. I mean, not everybody gets along with everybody, you know. Right. I mean, there's always going to be clicks. So, yeah, Alan was a quiet guy. He was an introvert. He was shy, which are two separate things, by the way. And he was both. True. Um, and, and so, yeah, he, he wasn't a guy who was going to go out with his, with his, with his teammates. He kind of went his own way. Um, but I, he, I think he got, the, he got the rap of being controversial because – Sports writers and and Dick Allen were like oil and water. I mean, they just didn't get along. Right. And um, and, and so, you know, there was there was I, when I was researching the Allen book, the one thing I found was really interesting was that there was this hierarchy, and the hierarchy was it's much different than the hierarchy is today. But the hierarchy back then was you had the top was your your superstar player was the top, and then your veteran sports writer was right beneath him. And then your average player was beneath that guy. So when a veteran sports writer walked into a clubhouse, he had an expectation that that player was going to give him what he wanted because that's how the hierarchy went. The pecking order was the veteran sports writer who'd been around covering the team for 20 years was higher up than the, you know, the rookie or the, whoever, the average ball player. Allen, even as a rookie, Allen didn't follow that pecking order, and I think it bothered a lot of sports writers and that's why they called him Richie and not Dick Allen, because he said very clearly in the very beginning his name was Dick, not Richie, and it was a power play by first Philadelphia sports writers and then other sports writers to say, no, your name is Richie. What? Wait a what? It seems like a nothing thing, right? But that was that was a that was a power dynamic going on. That was sports writers saying, you know what? You're not going to tell us what to do. We're higher than you on the uh, on on the pe- in the pecking order. Have you met Dick um, Allen, and- Professor? What? Have you met Dick Allen? Um, it's funny. He wouldn't talk to me beforehand, but now afterwards he talks to me. So, um, yeah, I did meet him. Um, uh, you know, he, he's a, um, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's a, um, he, he, he's a, on the quieter side. He does his own thing. Um, and uh, he's, he's, I, I feel like he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't. He would like to be recognized, but he doesn't like to seek the recognition, like for the Hall of Fame right now. Gotcha. Um, why he won't camp? Why he won't campaign for that? Um, he's an interesting person. Um, you know, he's getting up there in age, so you know, I think he's going to be on the ballot next year. 
Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully people do the right thing. But Maybe I'll finally I get don't, in. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't hold out a lot of hope. But we'll, we'll see. Cross our fingers. We'll see. Marvin Miller finally got in. Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue, Radio.World, with uh, law professor at Villanova University School of Law, Mitchell Nathanson, and he's also an author and a, and a pundit. You know, we've talked about Kurt Flood, and for a minute he came up in this interview, and the late famous baseball player who challenged baseball's reserve clause, and you were a scholarly advisor to a 2011 HBO documentary about Kurt Flood. Professor, tell us about your work as an advisor to that documentary. Well, that was really based on um, a really good book by Brad Snyder. Um, I read it. Uh, the, curious, the Curious Case is that the curious case of Kurt? No, no, sorry. It was that was interesting. That was a, the curious case of Kurt Flood was an HBO name. Um, it was um, uh, I can't remember the name of Brad Snyder's book, but anyway, it was based on his book, I believe. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it was really an interesting project. Um, you know, most of the credit goes to Brad Snyder for writing a great book. Um, about not only him as a player, but his life and the myth of Kurt Flood and the reality of Kurt Flood. Um, and it, he was just a, a really interesting guy. I mean, he, he was, there was a lot of facets to Kurt Flood. He had a very difficult personal life, um, which I hadn't known about before I read Brad's book. Um, and he had he dabbled in art, and there was a question about whether he actually painted any of these things that he claimed to have painted. He lived in, uh, I think he lived in, in Amsterdam for a while, he, he he totally dropped out of American society as a result of um, his his fight with baseball uh, to break their uh, to get rid of their antitrust uh, exemption. Uh, he was really an interesting guy, and it was an interesting. The documentary is really an interesting documentary. Um, so if you haven't seen it, you should you should look. Oh, it I want to see it for it. sure. Like I said, I read Brad Snyder's book years got Kurt Flood. It's a fascinating book. So let me put on your baseball fan hat. Uh, Professor, you're you're obviously a knowledgeable baseball guy. Kurt Flood, I believe, was a three-time All-Star, a good player, but not a phenomenal player. But he certainly, his actions played a role in major social change in, in the sport of baseball and just society in general. Do you think Kurt Flood uh, should be a Hall of Famer? Or do you think he's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day? I don't think he's ever going to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he wasn't that good. Of, I mean, he was a good player, um, but he wasn't. He wasn't. Um, I don't think his numbers are Hall of Fame. Numbers now. If you're going to add in the other stuff, um, he's interesting because he, you know, he took this stand, which I think you have to commend. Uh, um, it was a futile gesture. I mean, there was no way they were go- that, that he was going to win that case, and he lost that case in the Supreme Court. Right. Um, but um, you know, to the extent that that helped to motivate the players to be a little more active in the players association i think he was instrumental in that and um you know most of the players don't even know who he is uh today so that's incredible um yeah i i always had an idea like you know for jackie robinson day they everybody wears number 42 right um i i thought it would be a good idea that um for 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 that going forward that each team pick a player um who, who has had an impact, you know, uh, uh, an African-American player in their past who's had an impact. Um, and everybody on that team would wear that player's number for that day. So everybody in Philadelphia would wear 15. And, um, you know, in in, um, in St. Louis, they would wear Flood's number. Uh, Pittsburgh could, you know, could wear uh, Roberto Clemente, although, you know, 
Um, and, and and people would learn about more of these people who played such a big role. I mean, Jackie Robinson, of course, is important, but there are other people who are important too. And I think that those people get lost. And you know, a guy like Kurt Flood kind of got lost. I mean, you know, people who people who study this stuff know who Kurt Flood is, but the average fan doesn't know who Kurt Flood is. The average Cardinals fan doesn't know who Kurt Flood is. Um, and I think it would be a great gesture if you know, one day a year, everybody wears, you know, everybody in the Cardinals at least, wears Kurt Flood's number. And then, you know, you're watching a Cardinals game, you're like, why are they all wearing that number? And then you have a conversation, and then you learn a little bit about, you know, how the game great idea. changed as a result of them. I like it. But, I like it. You know, one thing, Professor, about Kurt Flood, this is sort of two lawyers talking here. I always thought it was interesting that former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg went back to his former court, the Supreme Court, to represent Kurt Flood. That There's a couple of interesting footnotes to his whole case, isn't there, uh, Professor? Well, yeah, yeah. He, he represented Flood, and he, he, he botched that case uh, pretty badly. Um, uh, you know, it's funny, because I, I, I do assign a chapter of um, Brad Snyder's book, the, of the oral argument, um, in my class, uh, I have a uh, oral advocacy uh, portion of my class, and I assign that to my students to read to show them what not to do when preparing for oral argument. Um, he he completely botched that oral argument, and um, he wasn't prepared. He went up there thinking he was going to give a, a lecture. Why he thought he could do that, given that he was on the Supreme Court and knew you weren't going to be able to get up there and make a speech, is beyond anybody's Isn't that guess. something? But, yeah, he, he just... Now, I don't know if Kurt Flood was going to win anyway, but he, but Goldberg did him no favors. Top lawyers can make bad arguments, no doubt about it. Paul Schnarman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with uh, law professor Mitchell Nathanson. Professor, we got a couple minutes left. I can't believe how fast these interviews go. I want to get two more subjects in with you. Let me just package two more subjects in, and at some point down the road, I'd love to have you back. So you wrote a book that's about to come out about Jim Bouton. Bouton wrote that famous book, Ball Four. It was sort of been called the catcher of the rye of baseball. It's an expose on players and the subculture. He, there's a Seattle tie to his book because he played for part of the 1969 season with the Seattle Pilots. Their former stadium is right near our, our studio. But what were a couple of new things you learned about Bouton in your biography that's about to come out about Jim Bouton? Well, you know, this, 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 the, the thing that always interested me about Bouton was that He's like a split personality, and then on the one hand, he he he's a very smart guy, or he was he was a very he wasn't you know he, he wasn't college educated, but he was a he was a smart guy and a well a well spoken reasoned guy. On the other hand, he's known as the bulldog, and which is I, I was interested in how that how you can have both of those things at once. And I what I what I learned when I was doing the book. Was that the bulldog was kind of a mask for he uh, some a fundamental insecurity that that Bouton had in in that he he never thought he was good enough and I think this this mask of the bulldog is one of the things that helped him to get through the fear of failure not being good enough something like that um, and so that was really interesting to me when I was going through the research and then writing the book. Fascinating. Fascinating about Jim Bowden. So I got a question, another question about Bowden. So the late Howard Cassell, the famous broadcaster, he referred to Bowden's book as a juvenile 
Puriel book, Puriel book. That's how he described it. What is your, what is your take on Howard Cassell's take on uh, Ball Four, Bouton's famous book? Cassell didn't like it. Well, Cassell didn't like Bouton. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know that Bouton, re- Bouton replaced Cassell on, on WABC New York Channel 7 News. I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, actually there's a whole section of the book about Cosell and Bouton and how, actually, interestingly, Cosell was the one who recommended Bouton for the TV sportscaster job. Uh, and another, you asked earlier another question about what I learned about Bouton when I was doing the book. You know, when I spoke to Keith Oberman, uh, you know, the ESPN Sports Center, he sure. told me that he fashioned Sports Center after watching Jim Bouton's sportscasts in the early 70s. And so he said, you know, if you watch my, you watch Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann do Sports Center, they're basically doing a uh, a, a ripoff of Jim Bouton's Channel <laughs> Seven Sportscast in the early seventies. Never knew that. Kind of a kind of a reverent, um, kind of moving beyond the the box scores and things like that. Uh, and Cosell was the one who got Bouton started, which was interesting. Yeah, Cosell. I spoke to a lot of people who worked with Cosell. Because there is a large part of this book that deals with Bouton's life as a sportscaster, uh, and the what I learned about Cosell was that Cosell loved Cosell, and he didn't like anybody impeding on his turf, and he felt that Bouton was impeding on his turf. Um, he didn't like the idea of athletes having an opinion, uh, a brain. He, he set up for he Ali, though. The brain. He did set for but, Muhammad Ali, though. Yeah, but you know. I, I think it's. I don't. Know, how much did he respect Ali? I don't know. Sure. I, I think Ali was was a. I think Ali was playing with Cosell, and Cosell didn't realize Ali was playing with him. I, right. I, I don't. I, I think that 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 Cosell didn't think that anybody had a valid opinion other than him. Oh yeah. And and certainly a guy like Bouton, who was a ball player who was going to come in and write a book and tell you how sports were from the inside when Howard Cosell was the guy who was going to, you know, tell it like it is. Professor, I think the thing that that Cosell didn't like was that Bouton told it like it is. A lot of stories there. Professor, we got less than a minute left, and I I didn't have a chance to get into your your great book about the 1977 Phillies. If I get you back, I'd love to talk about that. But what's in the uh, future for Professor uh, Nathanson? Oh geez, I'm just I'm just, uh, I'm still thinking Bouton. I haven't even thought about the next thing, but I guess <laughs> at some point I gotta I gotta start thinking about that. But not yet. Uh, look, looking at any, any interesting academic projects ahead for you? Um, well, I am working on something about um, Bouton uh, and Saul Alinsky. Um, you know, two radicals and how they managed to change the world. Bouton changed baseball's world. You know. Uh, and Alinsky changed, of course, you know his community organizing and and his his rules for radicals and things like that. So I was I was thinking about toying around, toying around with something like that. Can't wait to That's read it. Well, Professor, thank you so much for doing a little chat on sports and stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Let's you and I stay in touch. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You take care. Thank you, sir. All right. See you. Bye bye.